Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, Sarah. Welcome. Hi, Angela. Welcome to New Books Network. It's nice to have Thank you. you. Um, it's Sarah, so nice that, that you had me on to talk about my book, so I'm glad to be here. Well, your book is Primary Lessons, a Memoir. I want to say that I have read your book, and I thoroughly and thoroughly enjoyed your book. I think what I thoroughly enjoyed about reading it is how, although it takes place decades ago, it's still very relevant to today. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about Primary Lessons. Well, it's a book that chronicles my life from age five until I'm 17 years old. It begins in Philadelphia where I'm living with my aunt because my mother, a school teacher, has had to go back to work and there's no one to take care of me because all of her family has migrated north. So her older sister has no children, and she longs for a child, so she agrees with my mother to take care of me until I'm old enough for school. Now, I live a privileged life for the first five years of my life, and then when I'm five, my mother brings me into the segregated South, into a single-parent home, where I go from living in a house with four bedrooms into living in a house with three rooms and five children. So I am not happy in the South. So this book is my introduction to segregation, to poverty, to a single parent family, to being um, trained in the Southern way of living. And I do not take to any of this. So it's that 12-year period when I lived with my mother, and it was written to make peace with the ambivalence I felt about my mother and my aunt. I was angry at my aunt for sending me back to my mother, and I was angry with my mother for taking me away from my aunt, and I carried those feelings for a large part of my life, and this book was written to help me understand that ambivalence. 
That's interesting. The book helped you with this ambivalence. So would you say if you had, if someone else wanted to write a memoir, um, because it, it felt as though it was a healing place for you to write it, um, what would you suggest that they, how would you suggest that they start? Um, the interesting thing about our lives is that we tell stories about the important things. We don't see them as books, but we keep telling the same kind of story. And I would say to anybody who's interested in writing about their life, to start with the story they always tell. And this is practical information because I think about my friends and the stories that they tell me. There's always some one story that is so meaningful, they don't even realize they keep telling it, but they tell every new person and Whenever a similar circumstance comes up, they repeat the story. And for me, that's how I got started. Because the idea of writing a book about your life is so overwhelming, you don't know where to start. And mine was written almost in um, episodes, kind of essays. And then after it was written, I put the things together in some kind of sequential order that made sense to a reader. Wow. Okay. Um, there's one section in your book, thank you, that um, I've been following you on your journey as you've been going different places with your book. Mm-hmm. And there is, a, in Chapter 18, it says, Sumter's Public Library is a big brick building on Harvin Street. I'm not allowed in there, even though Mama says her taxes help support it. The law says my skin color makes me unworthy. Uh, I want to talk about this library. I want to talk about this skin color and this unworthiness. Um, Have you been back to Sumter? Have you been able to go into this library? And how did it make you feel? Oh, Angela, you touched the soft spot for me. I am professionally trained as a librarian because I was excluded from the public library. I was determined that I was going to get the keys to a library. So I became a librarian where nobody could keep me out. Now, going back to Sumter after my book came out was enlightening and it was also disturbing. Um, First, that library, which was a Carnegie library, was abandoned and they built a beautiful brand new library. When my book first came out, my goal was to do a book talk at that library because I've done loads of book talks all around. That library, which is huge, which has uh, it's the actual municipal library in my town, told me that they don't do book talks for individual authors because they have too many authors to have it. Now, I had no idea something in my hometown was such a hotbed of publishing but they would not allow me to do that. However, I could participate in an annual book fair where I could come in, set up a table with other local authors and do um, book sales. Now, there were probably 10 authors there, and my idea or my thought was, well, if they've only got 10 authors this year, they could do one book talk a month. So some things have not changed in the South. Okay. I'm still not permitted to do a book talk. I gave them a copy of my book, and it is on record there, and people check it out, and people read it. 
So it's in the library, but going back and doing a book exhibit is quite different from being a featured author at your hometown library. And I haven't given up on that yet. I've been back twice to the book fair, but I expect at some point that will happen. Wow. So correct. Things have not, we take two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, three steps back. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Um, well, one of the things one of the things that a woman who will tell you her age will do is she'll tell you anything. I've stopped picking and choosing which kinds of questions I answer and how honest I am okay. because I feel that if we share the basic truth that we will find other people understand and identify with it. And that has kind of become my goal since this book came out, to be authentically me. And that's all that I can offer to my audience, but I promise them I will tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. That's a great promise. We all want truth. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Rita Mae Brown says in this article called Writing as a Moral Act that we must, as writers, provoke and disturb people with truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> with truth. So you've nailed that right on the head. You've nailed that right on the head. <laughs> okay, so um, I love this cover on the front of your book, Uh, primary lessons, a memoir, and then there's this wonderful black and white photo of a young girl hmm, with a tiara and a white gown holding a bouquet of flowers, Um, and it's black and white. It's one of those photos that you know was when it was only black and white. Tell us a little bit about the photo and why the photo was chosen for the cover of this book. Well, that photo was taken two weeks before my mother died at my debutante cotillion. In the South, for black families, it was important that your daughter be selected to be presented to society. Mm. And my mother was adamant about my getting chosen. So... It made her very happy that I was selected and went through the whole training process. So that picture, which is taken two weeks before my mother died, is kind of the last innocent picture that's taken of me. At that point, I had pleased my mother. I'd been selected. And that the power of costume is important because when you put something on like that, you put a tiara on a young girl and you put long white gloves that button at the palm and you put high heels and you give her a bouquet of flowers. It's very empowering because it says you are important. That picture captured that moment for me. And even though I've lost so many things from my childhood, I always kept that picture. My publisher, however, had a whole different kind of idea for the cover of the book, but my husband insisted that that photo, which epitomized my life at that period, was the perfect cover for the book. And I pressed my publisher to use it, and they agreed and said, yes, this is the right cover for the book. And people say readers select the book often because of the jacket. They will pick up the book and look at it, and then they look inside and decide they want to buy it. And I've had so many people say that the cover of that is intriguing. Now, I get an equal number of people who ask me that my wedding picture. Oh, 
And I say oh. to them, don't, don't I look a little young to be getting married? And they go, well, you're from the South. <laughs> <Sure>. oh. <laughs> okay. That, so that says something about being from the South and the North and age and stereotype and marginalization, all that stuff, putting us in a box from one small picture. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, mm-hmm. yes. Um, you are important comes from this performance of this costume. I love the way you say that. And then we talked about being worthy, although you were not allowed to go into the Sumter Library, which takes me back to the first thing you said, privileged life. And when you think about someone from the South, right, history um, does this to us. Um, When we think about Southerners, we don't necessarily think of a privileged life, right? Um, And so you were in Philadelphia living that privileged life. Can you talk a little bit about what that privileged life was like for you? Um, Angela, my aunt was an independent businesswoman. Now, mind you, she ran a laundry from the basement of her house. She only did sheets and curtains and pillowcases and tablecloths and napkins. She said she did the high end in laundry business. And she lived in a four-bedroom house. I had my own room. My aunt made me believe that when I woke in the morning, the sun came up. And when I went to bed at night, the sun went down. And that's a powerful thing to give a child. So I grew up thinking that I was fine. I was wonderful. I was given freedom to talk to adults. I I lived the perfect kind of life for a child. My aunt encouraged me. You know how grandparents are with their children differently than parents are. My aunt was old enough to be my grandmother. She'd never had children. So for me, I was this wonderful companion that she could introduce to the world. So once a week, we'd get dressed up and go downtown to John Wanamaker's and go shopping and have lunch at Horn and Harder. I thought everybody in the world lived like that. Mm-hmm. So when I went south, my aunt said to me that I could do whatever I wanted and be whatever I wanted as long as I worked hard and studied. And I believed her. So when I went south, I simply felt that those people there didn't know me because if they knew me, they'd like me. And that was the thing that carried me all my adult life. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. You're, would that happen to be Aunt Susie? Yes, it's my Aunt Susie. <laughs> and she said to me that, that you're as good as anybody else and probably better. Wow. Wow. That's... Now, this is from a woman who only graduated from the eighth grade. Oh. Okay. Which says that anyone can do anything uh, despite race, education, um, and economics if they set their mind to it. If they set their mind to it. And because she had grown up in the Jim Crow South and had left the South for the city of brotherly love with an intention to make her life better and had achieved it without an education, she felt, if I got that, that I could really do anything that I wanted. And that's, that's the power that has driven me all my life. That's one of the primary lessons. Have a mm-hmm. cool, yeah. So if I take this book into the classroom, how does it fit into African-American studies? 
I laugh at the idea that um, I can compare this and say it's like a slave narrative. It's a modern-day slave narrative. People see folks in the street, and they have no idea what has made them the way they are. If you take this book, you see a child who's thrust down in a situation that is not to her liking, and yet she's able to use the card she's given to make a life. I was different from family members because I'd been given a different set of principles early in my life, and yet I had to interact in a family, a community, and it's the idea of how we choose to survive, how we are able to pick and choose the things that will enhance what are our natural gifts. And I think in the classroom, when students can identify, I was an ordinary girl, just like any young woman. And when she can look at back and say, oh, she did these kinds of things, she did that, I become a mirror for them. And it's this mirror that I think strengthens people to realize they can do similar things. I had a young woman say to me after I read your memoir, I figured if you could become who you are based on your history, that I could do anything. So that's partially what happens and why in the classroom we try to give girls mirrors that they can hold up and see themselves in. How about for the young men? How can they I think for young I think that young men can also take those same lessons from a woman's life. Um, things that happen like I talk. I talk a lot. My mother used to tell me, Well, since you like to talk, I suggest you get involved in things that people will be interested in listening to you talk about. That's really a very important lesson to give a child. And because you can talk all the time. Mom said, nobody would want to listen to me if I were talking about boring, dumb things. So it meant that I had to be involved in important things. This works for girls and for boys. There are things where my sense of respect about older people and my refusal to accept things that people tell you at face value. I question everything. Books became my guide. I knew that the world did not exist exactly as I saw it because I read in books. So these are the same kind of things you could actually, at most points in that book, you could substitute a boy for a girl, except I had no father figure in my life, which for a boy would have been very vital. So there's, they would have to call on some other book to pick up the mirror image there. But for the emotional kind of life and the emotional development that I went through, it was for boys and girls. Yeah, that's what um, Bell Hook says in one of the books, and I shouldn't say it if I can't quote which one um, she was talking about, that um, boys can learn from women. You know, they can learn those yes. strong values, and you touched on a huge one, emotional development, emotional development mm-hmm. and determination and determination. Um so that's um, wonderful. I do like the way you compare the book to modern day slave narrative because it's the child who has no say in um, mm-hmm. what she does. But like um, some of the privileged uh, early writers, you got the great lesson of coming to the page 
um, and loving books and learning through books. Did yes. you, by any chance, did you keep a diary? While you- no, I never, I never kept a diary. But one of the things that I did that has been pivotal in my writing career is from the time I was 12 until I was in 11th grade, I had a pen pal in South Dakota. And she couldn't wait to get my letters. So what it forced me to do was to look at my life and be able to extract important things from it, write it down and send it to her. She loved my letters. I wish I had access to those letters now as an adult to look back the way a person would look in a journal. So I have always been directly communicating with others as opposed to communing with myself, which is what's done in journal. Right. right. So now I've never, I've never kept journals as a child. As an adult, I write a morning prayer each day of Thanksgiving. Okay. And that's about as close as I've come to keeping a journal. Okay. All right. There is a um, that small thing where letter writing can be just as close as diary writing because you're sharing um, your innermost being. And even in the book, you share with us a few letters and a letter to a boy, you know, a letter to Sharon. So you give us those intimate moments, you know, of yourself that we would not expect. I love that. So if Angela, you, you make you make me smile when you call my characters by name. <laughs> it's as if you know them and I'm laughing saying I can't believe that people kind of form bonds with these people. At book yeah. talks I get people who will ask me questions like, Did your aunt Ethel ever have a baby and did you ever I'm like, Really? <laughs> yeah. You you put you primary lessons brings us right into your world. Right. You, I'm in there and I'm in there with you. I don't want to go to my mom's house as well. I mean, we're rooting for you. That's what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, you've set this mm-hmm. up where, where the reader is rooting for you because you set a mirror. Every child has to have a, make a choice. Right. Mm-hmm. Every child has to make a choice. Right. Because if you go, like, you, I mean, you did have to go back to your mother's, but you could have chose to be obstinate. Right, but you didn't exactly. So you do that for us, right? You do that for us um, as we read the book. You did that for me. Um, so if you could add one thing, tell your readers something that we didn't discuss. What would you tell them? What would you say about primary lessons? That I'm surprised at the number of people who aren't black who are intrigued by the story to the point that they write to me and talk about their place in my book. Transcendence. That surprises me. That surprises me. It has really, I figured, you know, I'm nobody. I don't have a worldwide following. I don't have a TV show. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not coming back from drug and alcohol rehab. I'm, I'm not suffering with baby mama, daddy drama. I never thought the subject matter of my book would capture anybody other than my friends and a few other people, folks from my hometown. But instead, the book has transcended me. It has made my life seem reminiscent of a period. The book takes place between 1951 and 1963. So people who know that era 
or came of age during that era, have taken an interest in this book and carried it far beyond anywhere I ever expected it to go. When they talk to me about the social significance, I kind of smile and say, I never thought about it. I got a review in Siwani, which is a college, a southern college thing, which is an academic. And the woman analyzes this book, and I'm just smiling, saying, oh, I never thought about that meaning. Oh, I never looked at it that way. So the book is bigger than I am, and I think it's because I was so honest and raw in what I was willing to tell you. I worried about some of the things I said in the book and what people were going to think about my mother and what she was doing and all of that. And instead, I had people come and say, your mother was a brave woman who was willing to do whatever it took to keep her family together and fed and clothed. So I'm pleased that it's gone beyond my small vision of it. Absolutely. Oh, this is great. Do you have a second one in mind? Oh, yes. This book follows me until I am in my first semester of college when my father dies. I have been working on book two, which follows me through college until the time I marry for the first time at 44. So I am probably halfway through that book. But I like to tell people I'm too busy living book three to write book two. (laughs) (laughs) My life keeps unfolding all these new things. But yes, I'm at work on the next one, which um, I hope to finish in the next year or two. Okay, well, when that one is finished and it hits the shelves, and if I'm still around, I'm inviting you back. Um, And I also want to tell our listeners that I'm going to add a YouTube clip to the blog in which we get uh, Sarah reading live um, this wonderful short story um, about a lady in a disco. I mean, and there are more lessons. There are more lessons um, in that book. Uh, Sarah, I'm going to say this to you. You have hit something. Several years ago, I was at a conference, and I was pitching this idea to this agent. It was in the 70s, and she said, that's not historical. And I thought, oh, a few days ago, I was at another conference, um, and they were saying, in the high schools, history has to go back to the 70s because students don't know the 70s, right? And I'm just thinking about the piece that you wrote. And then this morning in class, a student was presenting her um, presentation and someone, another student said, if you could go back in time travel, where would you go? And do you know she said the 70s? And I thought, wow, Sarah nails the disco in the 70s. So so listeners, I hope you click on that link and um, listen to Sarah's short story about the disco. (laughs) Well, thank you, Angela, for giving me this opportunity to talk to listeners, and I hope they'll visit me on the web at www.onmymind.org, and they'll get to see what I'm working on these days. Absolutely, absolutely. This was great. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Angela.